I grew up listening to my dad play audiobooks on road trips, and I've always loved what a good narrator can do with a good text. But the process, how you actually go about bringing a story to life in audio form, has been mostly unknown to me, and I'm sure to a lot of us. All I know is that it must be more complicated than read it out loud. Which is why today it's my pleasure to talk with not just a good narrator, but a great one. Scott F. Feichner has narrated dozens of books, mostly in the horror genre. I know Scott because I had the honor of having him narrate one of my own, my short story collection, Animus. Scott and I talked about what makes audiobooks so magical and how he does what he does, from picking material to inventing the voices of characters to putting it all together into the final book. And if you stick around to the end, you'll get to hear Scott narrate one of my own stories, a twisted little tale called Snowed In. How'd you first get into narration, Scott? Uh, narration, audiobooks, is actually it's a continuation of what I've been doing since junior high. When I, I was hanging out at the radio station in Houghton Lake, Michigan, I wanted to be a disc jockey. And I did that for a number of years. And someone said, you've got a good voice. You should do commercials and narration. And I, I did that. I worked in radio for almost eight years in Michigan, moved to Houston, uh, started working as a video specialist, but I still occasionally would do uh, medical narrations or some sort of a corporate narrations, just, just a side money, kept doing that. And I was, I was happy with the split. Uh, and then... I listened to uh, Stephen King's The Gunslinger and said, I can do better than that. Is that with uh, George Guidall? Uh, the original recording done by Stephen King on cassette. Oh, okay. That was, that was actually the first audiobook I bought because of the author. And then later, Frank Muller recorded it. Right, right. After Frank some Muller. changes. And then after Frank's passing and some further revisions, George had taken it over. Okay. And and George is good. Yes. And you can't see this because it's all audio only. I just genuflected at the mention of George's name. And so I somewhere online I saw something about this ACX thing. So what's that? And signed up through Amazon and started auditioning. And uh, and lo and behold, I've been doing it since then. Not. Not huge amounts, only when I wanted to and and when something really struck my fancy. And uh, the first audiobook I narrated was called The Hollower by Mary San Giovanni. It was my 21st audition. I got picked. I recorded it. And it took forever. I made every conceivable mistake known to history, probably made up a few. It was like running a triple marathon after a lifetime of just sitting on the couch. <laughs> and somehow that was the beginning of it. And to jump ahead several years, the original rights to the audio version of The Hollower passed. Another company picked it up. It became available. I auditioned for it using a different name. And I got that one too. <laughs> well, that's good that they... So, <laughs> so now 50, 50 books in, I'm considering myself, yep, I do this. So how do you go about picking a project? Like, are there are there particular genres you're into, or do you follow authors, or is it like, you you know, this sounds, the plot sounds interesting? It started, just the plot sounds interesting, and then I narrowed it down to what I like reading, thrillers, 
uh, mysteries and horror novels. So the bulk of what I've done, you look at me uh, as Scott McDonald or uh, uh, Scott Feichner, you'll notice uh, that that's mainly what I do. I love reading horror novels. I love reading horror, thrilly, scary uh, stories and movies. So that's what I stick with. That's that's my wheelhouse, as it were. Does and, that does, is that important? Like, I suppose it's just it's given how much time goes into making an audiobook and how much work, it just helps a lot if you're digging the material. Exactly. It's uh, any author, you know, write what you know, write what you, write about what you like. I like this these kind of stories, and uh, not to say I haven't done nonfiction, but I had to be interested in the subject. Uh, I did one called Graveyard of the Lakes, which was about every known shipwreck shipwreck on uh, the Great Lakes around Michigan. I did a couple of political ones, two really important ones, uh, Libertarian Mind and uh, Tyranny of Silence that I got through uh, the Cato Institute. And a, a nice writer recommended my name. <laughs> and uh, I did those. And it's like, I have now done important works. You did a fantastic job. Well, thank you very much. Okay, so you've let's you've picked a project. Let's mm-hmm. say um, you've it's you've agreed to do it. What's the process look like? The first process, um, I'm kind of old school, so I print out the manuscript. A lot of people, majority of people, use tablets. I have to print out the manuscript due to an extreme case of uh, uh, ADDHD. So I print out the manuscript separate them into chapters. Um, In the upper right corner, I count down to the last page of that chapter so I can actually see it shrinking. I need to see the pile shrink, otherwise I won't get there. Mm -hmm. Then I start reading it. I I try to read each manuscript minimum of twice. Occasionally, if there's time or it's short enough, I can do three times. And I start making notes on the pages about characters. Who does it sound like to me in my head? Um, And I quite often pick characters that I've watched in, in movies or, or TV as that character. Um, I look for any cues about speech, um, especially with, with the, the main character, because I don't want to be one of the people who gets three quarters of the way through the novel uh, or the story and then discover that he has a slight Hungarian lisp which had never been mentioned for 175 pages. And I've read horror stories about that. Uh, Biggest example, uh, a narrator friend of mine was working on a series in book three, began discussing the French accent that was never mentioned in the first three novels, which were already published and out in the marketplace. That question about characters. um, So you said you're you're looking at... You're reading it, and does this seem like someone else you've encountered? Is that so? Are you basically are you doing impressions? In uh, a sense, not complete impressions, but I'm trying to catch the gist of the person without doing a specific. I'm not doing a narration of uh, an impersonation of, say, Robert Redford or or Christopher Walken, but I may catch some of the nuances. Um, in a story called Snowed In, uh, my yes. first impression changed as I read the first words from the bad guy. 
I was going to go large and screaming because he's pounding on the door, you know, come on out. I said, no, I, I remembered something a, a program director told me is that less is more. So I went 180 and brought him way down. And in the back of my head, I was thinking of Norman Bates. Yeah. He never yeah. really blew up. He was always, you know, subdued and calm because he didn't want to upset mother. So Emily, open, can you open the door? Even when he's spouting profanities at her, he's just, hey, come on, let's have coffee. So that that's one of the things I do is uh, I try not to go with the obvious, um, and it seems to have worked. Yeah, and I'll say in that case, and, and listeners should definitely stick around at the end of this episode, they can hear Snowed In, read by Scott, um, that when I heard it, when you submitted the audition, because I put it up on that ACX, which mm-hmm. for, for listeners who don't know is Audible, the big outlet for audiobooks on my Amazon has a thing where if you're an author, you can post your text, your book or short story up there and narrators will come and audition and then you pick the one you like, they finish it and then you end up splitting the the proceeds from it. So it's a it's a cool way for new authors and new narrators who don't have access to huge publishing houses and people who are already doing it for them to to get access to this audiobook market. But when you when you submitted that, um, I don't have as a writer when I'm writing these characters, I don't have much in the way of a physical sense of them. Like I don't have, so I, first off, I don't have like a picture of what they look like in my head. I have, you know, like it's, I know that this is like a big guy or this is probably a smaller guy, um, but I don't have like, you know, facial features in mind. I frequently don't even really know what their hair color is. It's just like not a part of how I conceptualize the character. And, and as part of that, I also like don't have a sense of what their voice is. Like their voice to me is the what the text looks like on the page mm-hmm. and the cadence that comes from that. But like the sound of it isn't really in my head as I'm writing. Uh, and and so when I got your narration, it it's striking how much like it felt it felt not so it felt not like you getting right what I had had in mind. But it felt more like, oh, yeah, that is what that person sounds like. Um, so it was this really it was this really neat experience of kind of discovering the life of these characters in a way that was, you know, because it's audio, because I'm hearing a voice is like much more concrete than like the way they existed in my head. Yeah. And as they were in novellas uh, and short stories, you've got to cut out all the facts. So anything extra that doesn't move the story along it's left over there so which i I actually like narrating novellas and short stories because it's just the meat it's not a lot of fluff to it and i will say that you gave me what i think may be the best compliment any narrator uh can get from an author or rights holder is when you told me that you made i made you sound like a better writer than you are oh yeah definitely no it's Yes, listening to it, I um, I mean, when I read my own stuff, occasionally I'll be like, wow, that's, you know, that was a pretty good passage. But um, but I notice 
you know, there's I gripe about my own writing all the time, but yeah, but like the narration of it just elevates the whole thing. Um, and I don't think, I don't even think that's just me, right? Like there, I'm, I'm sometimes surprised that I've had these experiences of being disappointed in an author because I'll start by reading, by listening to them. Like I'll find their audiobook and I'll listen to it and it's phenomenal. And so then I'll go and I'll pick up one of their books, you know, as a physical book or a Kindle book and read it. And I'm like, oh, their prose isn't actually that good. It's just, <laughs> it's the narrator has like, has brought it to life in the same way that, you know, like Patrick Stewart was able to elevate the bad dialogue of Star Trek by simply being Patrick Stewart. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I kind of do the same thing now I'm listening to narrators all the time. Uh, there is an author, I, I won't name him, but he's like always compared to that Stephen King guy. And he gets a lot of, gets poo-pooed on a lot, but he's written jillions of books. And I wasn't a big fan of this author. And I listened to uh, a narration of a, a book of his done by Eduardo Ballerini. It was it was like old school, reading the entire book in one night. I listened to the entire book in one night. And otherwise, I would never have picked up this this author's book just because he's not one of my favorites. And uh, so a good narration can move move things along and get, gives it new life you know life you know like the patrick stewart example is perfect. yeah and i think that's one of the the cool things about audiobooks is that it's not it's not just the same thing in a new medium you know it's not like it's not like well this is the ebook version of the text but it still is the text it's like it's it's an entirely new thing that really is a collaboration yes um, when you're when you're doing these characters, because these books have, you know, there's there's a fair number of characters. Um, so it's not like it's not like, you know, you're in a you're in a movie and you're playing one guy. You're playing all of them and you're playing the narrator who is a, you know, even if the narrator is unnamed and is just, you know, the authorial voice is still another character who has to be, you know, done correctly to get the story across keeping track of these i i remember listening to the game of thrones audiobooks which have literally thousands of characters <laughs> and i think it was roy dotrice did those yes and and it's astonishing because he manages to it's not just that he comes up with a separate voice for every single one of these characters, but that he can do a scene where, you know, a dozen of them are all talking to each other and he's moving between them. And it just seems like, how does, how does one do that? How do you keep track of not just developing their voices, you know, as part of the pre-production process, but in the telling of it, as you're sitting in the booth behind the mic, reading this stuff, keeping track of all of them. Ah, simple trick. Um, you're recording a chapter. You have a conversation between Sarah and Max. Now, Max, the lead character, most of the time, is pretty much my voice. You know, different from the uh, from the dial uh, description, but it's it's my voice. Now, the female or any other character, once I'm settled on that and I've recorded a passage of conversation, I stop. I open up and create a new file, copy that conversation, and take out 
everything that has nothing to do with Doreen. So I have a file labeled Doreen's Voice, and it'll be two, three, four, five sentences of her talking. So if um, later I go, oh, what, what did she sound like? I can click on that file, listen to her and go, oh, yeah, it sounds like my third grade girlfriend. Huh. And uh, I heard that, I learned that from uh, what is it now? Dick, not Dick Dale, the, <laughs> Harry Potter. Is it Jim Dale? Jim Dale, thank yeah. you. Not the guitar player. Yeah, Jim Dale. He he's someone asked him, say, how do you keep track of all these kids and wizards and warlocks and monsters? And he pulled out a uh, uh, an old school digital recorder and has all the voices in there. He can just search for them and remind himself, you know, what somebody is supposed to sound like. Do you ever? I mean, so you've said you you've read the book at least twice before you get started mm -hmm. and you've tried to think through he, who each of these characters are, but have you ever had an experience where I guess once you've kind of brought them all to life and they're interacting with each other and you're part of the way into the book, you, you decide like you didn't get one of them, right? Yes. Uh, I, I have had that happen. And uh, fortunately I haven't been too far in and I just know that for chapter one, two, and three, when I'm going back and doing my, uh, uh, editing and my post-production on it, I've got to redo all of those voices. And I just, I can do a, uh, what's known as a punch and roll. I mark two spots, uh, hit record, backs up a little bit, and I just insert the new track. But fortunately, you know, uh, it hasn't happened often, but yes, it has happened. And uh, we've talked to a lot, I've talked to a lot of people say, oh yeah, we get, I got to the end and go, crap, it was wrong. And so... <laughs> So I'd rather find out on chapter four than on chapter 15. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then the rest of the text as as narrator, um, what kind of stuff so do you, you indicate like, you know, this particular part is really dramatic and should be read like pacing or the, the cadence of what you're doing? Do you mark that sort of stuff up and plan that out in advance? Uh, actually, I don't plan it too much. I have an idea of it. And it, it happens very organically while I'm I'm actually reading the material that I just know or sense that now I have to slow down. I have to hit certain words. And then there was this. Then that happened. And before we knew it, Carl was on the way. Clarice was chasing after him. And life was good. So it just happens. Kind of like when you're reading a novel or a story, you... You find yourself doing pauses or pacing or becoming quiet or louder just organically as you're reading it. Then that's what I try to do uh, while I'm narrating it. That that actually raises a other thing I was curious about as as a narrator. So I I mean I read out loud to my children. Um, it's a habit I got into after you know my father read to my brother and me all the time when we that's were kids. That's a good habit. Um, and I also he he listened to audiobooks. Um, as we were growing up and we would always, we go on like road trips because we lived in near Detroit and my grandmother was in Western New York and we would drive back and forth all the time. And he would listen to like a lot of like Tom Clancy novels. Mm -hmm. I think those were all that specific. We mentioned George Goodall, like George Goodall's voice is like embedded in like the back of my consciousness <laughs> from just like hours and hours of here, not understanding what these stories were about. Right. But just like kind of falling asleep to it in the back of a car driving across New York state. Mm -hmm. uh, and but 
but as I have, you know, as I, I, when I read out loud to the kids, one of the things I noticed, like there are certain prose that is easier to read out loud than others or more fun to read out loud. So by way of example, like I think HP Lovecraft is really fun to read out loud. Like for some reason, like the structure of his sentences and it's just, it lends itself to reading. Um, But there, there are other people who are much harder and are there, are there like features of prose that makes it work better for audio or worse? It it helps if it's well-written. You say H.P. Lovecraft, perfect for reading aloud because he has this New England, British, old-school, proper grammar syntax, even if he's throwing in words that nobody has ever heard of before in their entire lives. But it it just flows well. Um, I'm currently doing one, a book called Voiceless by an author out of New Mexico, Trent Zelazny. This man knows how to write great paragraphs, and they just flow. You know, uh, I make less mistakes recording him than some other books where suddenly there is a left turn in the narration or it just a, a, a speed bump that interrupts the flow of the narration and, and the reading, too. Uh, you've got to move through it. But, yeah, good written, well written. Well narrated, and you 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 sense those uh, pauses, the the pacing from that. You take your cues uh, from what's there on the page. What about dialogue? Because that seems like another area where it's there's almost like a difference in terms of what works for dialogue on the page and what works for dialogue in narration. Um, partly, maybe in like how natural they sound. So I'm thinking. You know, like one of my my favorite works ever, one of my favorite movies ever, um, is is Mammoth's Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh my uh, gosh! And, yes, uh, there are there are conversations like the one where I think the two guys are at the bar talking about like are stealing the leads, and they're saying like, "Are we doing this? Like, are we talking about this? No, we're just talking." Like they go back and forth on this kind of pedantic little point, and and it's. As a writer, like I listen to it, I watch the movie, and it's like astonishing. It's like watching a magic trick. I can't really figure yeah. out how Mamet can actually pull off That's- a conversation like this. But when I get the the first time I went, I found like a copy of the play um, and read the same scene. It didn't it didn't work the same way, and what felt really natural on the screen looked utterly bizarre in prose. Elmore Leonard is a, it seems like an example of maybe the other way where the dialogue works really well on the page, but feels a little bit odd off of it. Yeah. Uh, very stilted. Uh, if you try to read it exactly as is, but in your head, perfect. Uh, Larry McMurtry is the same way. It, it reads brilliantly, read it out loud. Okay. That's stiff. So you got to give uh, like for Mamet, creating that dry stuff that's on the page, which is poetry. You got to give that to the actors who bring that to life, whether on the stage or, you know, Al Pacino and Kevin Spacey, uh, Jack Lemmon. They they elevated and brought themselves and their character to the dialogue where in the hands of other actors, nah. Obviously, yeah, like you said, 
good prose is uh, is easier to read. Are there things authors do that you notice now as a narrator that like drive you nuts? Either either things that like as as you're reading for your own pleasure that you wouldn't have noticed had you not been a narrator. Or stuff that authors do that may be fine on the page, but like make stuff particularly difficult for you as a narrator. Yes, I, I have discovered that writers have their own shortcuts, much as actors do. And we've probably all seen the videos of the memes of Harrison Ford, the finger pointing. That's the thing he does in movies. There, uh, uh, I have a book I re- remember reading. Virtually every other sentence began with the character saying, well, well, Tommy, what did you think about chasing Hillary down the monster slope and saving her life? Well, Peter, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, this is just a shortcut. This is what he what he does. I wonder if that's the kind of thing that when it's on the page, it's like the mind just doesn't you kind of skip over it. So you don't even notice it when it's being, when it's written down because the the repetition makes you just not see the word. Well, Um, I'm thinking of uh, like, so to go back to Elmore Leonard and his, he's got his 10 rules for writing little classic essay. And one of them is when you're signposting dialogue, like indicating who's speaking, never use any verb other than said. So always just he said, or she said, and never use like he roared or, you know, uh, and and that part of that is that the mind, because we're all used to reading so much, like the he said and she said become almost like subconscious indicators. Like we notice them and our main brain uses them to say, okay, this is in this person's voice, this is in this person's voice, but they vanish. Mm-hmm. And so we're just hearing the dialogue in our head. But when you introduce these other verbs, it like gets in the way of that flow and that that's going to become really obvious when you as a narrator are having to read well over and over and over again, because your brain can't skip it because you've got to say it. And I then have to say he said, he, he said, or I have to say, stop it. He roared uproariously, humorously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How, how, how does one do that? Yeah. That's, um, yeah, I imagine, I just imagine that in general, it like having narrated for a while, it kind of changes your relationship to prose. It, it it really does. Um, you read differently now when, when you do this for a while. Um, say when, when I go to concerts or stage productions, because I worked in corporate and industrial events for so long as a video person and was familiar with all the light, what went on in the lighting and staging. The first part is me looking at the rigging and the staging and, and how everything is set up before I even start enjoying the play that I went to see or the concert that I went to see. You, you just notice things differently as a result of being so uh, getting so in-depth with it. Hmm. What does – so you've – We've gotten you've you've read the book a couple of times. You've figured out the voices of the characters. You have marked up the the narration as need be. You've sat down in your booth and you're recording. How long does it take to narrate an audiobook? Because I assume it's longer than you know uh, when I download the eight hour book from Audible. It took you more than eight hours to narrate that. That probably if an eight hour book. Just to record will be any was anywhere between thirty to forty hours. The kind of a rule of thumb you want to try strive for 
is that it will take you two hours to two and a half hours to get one hour of finished audio done. And that's what are you doing during that that 40 hours to produce eight hours of. I'm reading the page and then I I catch mistakes and okay, let's go back here and start again. No, I didn't like the way that turned out or it's just making sure everything goes. I use uh, software where I can punch and roll where I make a mistake. I go back to this point, click the mouse. It backs up five seconds to play and I follow along orally and just continue talking. Um, I'm, I'm good at about two hours per one hour, whereas it was three to three and a half hours at one time to do one finished hour. Uh, and you find yourself making really crazy mistakes. You discover you said at instead of it, because sometimes your own speech patterns fill in and you say something wrong. You use the, the wrong word. I kept saying subnerd rather than sunburned today uh, on a chapter. And, you know, the, the third or fourth time, I started getting a little upset, and then it, it clicked. So you're just you're trying to get it right the first time. It would just It's a great fantasy to say, chapter one, boom, done. Nope. If I can do 90 seconds to two minutes without making a mistake, stumbling over myself or, or slurring or thinking I've got two sections too close together, I'm doing good. Is that why sometimes I'll notice when I'm listening to an audiobook, there will be, you know, it's it's flowing along and then there'll just be a sentence or two where the narrator sounds slightly different. Yes. Like maybe, you know, like like I sound when I get a cold or something. Is that is that that's so I assume that that's was because it was an insert. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um a lot of the you know work is done through publishers. The narrator will record the book, send it to the publisher. A month later, they'll start getting pickups. At this time, you said this, but it needs to be this. So you you make your marks, and your voice will have changed from two months ago. How so do you deal may- with that? I try to not deal with it by... I, I listen to my mistakes, and at the end of every chapter, I, uh, I I go back and kind of skim through and say, let's get it right now. That way the voice doesn't change. And I, I have had a couple of occasions where pickets have come back have come back later, and I can just hear ever so slightly, uh, I didn't have as much coffee or as strong a coffee or, or tea while I was recording. So I can just hear this slight little thing. And maybe most listeners won't catch it. You'll catch it because you do your own recording. So you, you're listening to this. You'll, you'll catch that. Um, but fortunately, because you're involved, it's like watching a movie. You don't notice the guy in the cowboy hat you know, in, in the Spider-Man movie or on the Pirates of uh, the Caribbean movies, because that's not what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So those those things roll by, but that yeah, that does happen, and uh, just sometimes just a ever slight change in tonality, and uh, my ear, I hear it also even on uh, uh, big production authors and, and uh, book publishers. Um, and the other thing I hear that I, I fight is hearing a click, like a, a, a spit snap under the tongue, 
I, I work hard to keep all of those out, and I'm, I'm listening to a, a, a new book, a major publisher, major narrator. <laughs> just hear this little smacky smack uh, in the background, and it just it gets on that nerve that doesn't like those things. What about breathing? I'm always struck that you know you never you almost never hear the narrator breathing. But there have been instances, I, I can't remember who it was, I can't remember which book, but I remember there was one book I listened to where the narrator would simply inhale but every few sentences, which, I mean, we all have to do. If you're reading for hours, you, you have to inhale at some point. How do you yeah. keep that out? You, you learn to control that, um, to not make it so pronounced, to not, <laughs> to not read the paragraph to the end where you're running out of breath. And then, <gasps> continue. Um, if I find myself, personally, if I find myself doing that, I'll go back and listen to myself and find natural pause in the flow. Because uh, And there will be, like you say, breaths between paragraphs, between sentences, but it, it has to sound natural like you're being read to, but you don't want to hear, <gasps> is that, <clears throat> excuse me, that takes you out of it. And uh, there's, there's a lot of discussions about breath in the uh, uh, audiobook narrators forums on Facebook. And, and it's all the same. Don't take them out. It'll drive a listener even crazier to hear absolutely no silence because that's what you start listening for is the dead silence. Yeah. And is there, is there a standard, like a consensus on pace? I like just how quickly, how quickly you read. And I, I say this because I, um, I, mean, I listen to audiobooks a lot throughout my life, but you know, in the last five years or so, I started listening to a lot more of them. And and I fairly recently, like within the last year or so, started turning up the speed on them um, to, you know, anywhere between 1.25 to 1.5. And it's this weird experience as a listener because when you first do it, it sounds every it suddenly sounds like the person is speaking very very quickly. Mm -hmm. But after after twenty thirty minutes of listening, it sounds completely normal to the point where now if I listen to an audiobook at its regular speed, the default speed, it is like almost excruciatingly slow. And it's clearly um, that audiobook narration is at a much slower pace than most people's natural speech. Yes, that, that is true. And when you're studying with people and you talk, rule, everything that comes out of somebody's mouth, if you think you're talking too slow, slow down. Because we tend to talk at a much faster pace. And the thought is that the listener won't be able to keep up if you talk too fast. So we tend to slow down our pace and I, I don't speed up books but I can see how somebody would want to and I think as a result of discussions from listeners who what what speed do you listen to oh 1.25 or 1.50 my own pace has begun to speed up a little bit because people are keeping up at a at a, a faster pace of narration but that's always like the first thing you know, slow down, slow down. You're going too fast. Slow down. And I don't think that's actually the case anymore. And, and how do you deal with 
pronunciations, particularly so you read a lot of horror books and horror mm-hmm. books are, I mean, you just mentioned Lovecraft, like they're filled with all sorts of made up words and very strange ones at that. How do you handle like figuring out the right way to pronounce uncertain terms? Or I'll just give an example of my my novel um, was produced by publisher, had it turned into an audiobook, and it's very good, but the the narrator consistently pronounces the name of my female lead character wrong. Yes. Uh, and it we, drives me up the wall. Yes. And it probably, it probably doesn't bother anyone else, but yeah, but you know what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, that's, that's all part of the, uh, the, the first two reads you're looking for those words. Um, uh, I can't remember if it was a uh, uh, libertarian mind. I had to learn how to say KGB in, in Russian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but both in that book and tyranny of silence, there was a lot of words I've never seen in my life. So I had to go online, pronounce, fill in the blank and find one that sounded right. And then write it out phonetically on, uh, either on a, a three by five card in front of me, or if I had room on the, on the page in front of me and I just got to woodshed it, woodshed it. So by the time I get to KGB in Russian, it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. Um, the current project, I, there's a lot of uh, Spanish dialogue into it, short phrases. And I, I have a, a website that uh, is, uh, how do you pronounce in Spanish, basically, is what it says. So I type in this word in Spanish, and it will come out, and there will be either a guy or a gal pronouncing, uh, pronouncing it uh, properly, and I just listen to it and write it out and listen to it, and then woodshed it again 10, 15, 20 times until it feels right. So they're learning that it's it's all part of the uh, the pre-production before you even step in the booth and say prologue. Do you ever change anything in the booth? Like, I mean, I, I assume if you come across a typo in the text, you you know read it as it ought to have been. But do you ever? How how I guess slavishly do you stick to the text i except for the obvious things um where simple mistakes i will change that because i know in my heart in my head that that's what it's supposed Mm -hmm. to be but i will keep it as is i will keep it as uh written um and if if the word is spelled wrong obviously wrong i i go for you know what it's supposed to be, you know, someone spelled yeah. that with a Y accidentally. Well, the word is that. So it makes sense in the sentence. So I, I you, you stick to what's, what's there, except under the most extreme circumstances where it is obvious that the, the uh, proofreader missed it. Um, but otherwise, you know, what's on the page gets recorded. And that's, that's the kind of the hardest part of the uh, whole production skill. You get done, narrating and if you're doing your own proofing you've got to go back to chapter one and read it line by line while you're listening to it line by line to find out if you made any errors in the text while you're recording it it has to match the text on the page what does then post-production look like like so you've you've recorded this whole thing and you've got all these pieces of it because you've you know stopped and started and gone back and done inserts and so on like how long does the post production take about as long as the recording 
Um, and even longer, actually, because you're really listening with a, a critical ear um, for that. Um, you want to make sure all the words are there and in the right order and pronounced uh, properly. You don't want you're listening for accidental slurring of a word that you missed in the recording. And uh, so I'm listening for that. I'm looking for reading a sentence wrong. I'm also listening for uh, pacing between sentences. I may add uh, a shade of silence to it. I may delete a bit of silence, particularly during a conversation. I'm, I'm more likely to delete uh, a pause and to, to lengthen it unless there's an obvious need for uh, lengthening a pause in a conversation. Um, so that you're really looking at it with a hypercritical eye and ear comparing page to the recording. Um, and then once all that's done comes the mastering, which I have presets and it happens pretty fast. But yeah, I would say two and a half to three hours for each hour of uh, recorded audio. And, and you tell yourself, yeah, I can have this done in uh, yeah, two and a half days, five days later, you're finally wrapping it up. Hmm. When one of the things that strikes me about audiobooks um, is they're always single narrator. And the process you've described, given how much you know you're recording it in pieces and you're doing post-production, like this could be done with different people reading different dialogue parts and it's cut together, especially if you're a major publisher and you know the audiobook is gonna sell quite a lot of copies. But we don't have that. And, and in my experience, like the, the handful of times that I have come across one, that's a full cast recording with then someone doing the narration, I almost don't want to listen to it because it sounds wrong. It sounds like a radio play. Yeah. I've heard a couple of those, uh, uh, graveyard by uh, Neil Gaiman worked well, but for the most part, nope, I don't like it. A lot of, uh, David Baldecci's uh, novels are done with a male narrator. It had been Ron McClarty until his passing, and a female narrator, and they split it up, male to female, male to female. And eh, no, I, I'd rather hear Ron McClarty try to do the female voice than get disrupted in the middle of the, of the telling of the story, listening of the story, by somebody else popping in. That's That was, I noticed that with, was I was trying to listen to, I, um, the Wheel of Time novels, I think they alternate narrators between chapters. So when it's a when the chapter is from a male protagonist standpoint, it's read the narration is by a man, and when it's read, you know, from when it's by a female protagonist, the narration is read by a woman. Um, so it's not it's not cutting back and forth in between the chapters, but in a way, it actually even made it worse because the characters, you know, the the female characters will appear in. The male, like different characters will appear in both of the sets of chapters. And so what you end up with is trying to keep track of two different narrators way of doing the voice for the same character. Yes. Uh, which, which made it awfully challenging and doesn't work at all. Yeah. I, I'm not a fan. I'm not sure when or why that started. Um, Maybe, you know, so let's just say in Ron's case, as great of a narrator as he is, he has this low, grady voice, <laughs> which made it hard for him to do female 
uh, characters. And I have a feeling that's with the ball Dutchie books. That's where that started. Um, but I, I, I just lose my space in the void of listening to a book when I'm driving from, you know, Houston to, to Northern Michigan. And I don't want that. I just, I want this person to sit down next to me and tell me a story. How much the how much do narrators along those lines end up getting typecast? Like that you, you know, you're the guy who started off reading history books, and so that's kind of the only thing you got you get to do, or that <clears throat> different kinds of voices do different kinds of voices like just get put into different genres? I'm trying to th- I don't know that that I've noticed it that much. Um well, Edward Herman, Herman, he did a lot of nonfiction. I think his delivery was better at that than him doing fiction. Um, Sean Pratt does a lot of nonfiction. He's, that seems to be his specialty. I think it's more if you want to specialize in that. I, I know a narrator. That's all he wants to do is nonfiction. He doesn't want to be bothered with fiction and keeping track of all the characters. He wants. He was a teacher. And he wants to continue being the teacher as an audiobook narrator. Um, thinking of some of my uh, uh, favorites, uh, uh, Frank Muller, uh, he ran the gamut of horror and thriller and mystery because his delivery said that's what he does. Yeah. Um, he, he had the ability. It's like no matter what he was reading – I mean, and he's Frank Miller is one of the. I mean, is just astonishing. Like one of the best yeah. like, narrators ever. Um, and but everything he read sounded sinister. Yes, yes, yes. He well, he had that little thing he did with his voice, and then Bob. The question became about the production and the editing, and then turn to your favorite authors and narrators, and kind of see where the conversation goes from there. Yeah. Chapter two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he wasn't going to be reading any like beach romance novels or anything. No, although he did do uh, beach music by uh, uh, Pat Conway. Oh, yeah, I bet that that changes the vibe of it a fair. Yeah, amount. yeah. So he could go that way, but yeah, he come think. Yeah, as I think about it, we sit here discussing it. Yeah, certain narrators just stick to their wheelhouse, which is why I stick to pro- predominantly uh, novels, uh, horror novels. Um, from Thomas Monteleone, uh, um, Joseph J. Cristiano, uh, Paul F. Olson out of uh, Northern Michigan. Uh, yeah, I, so maybe the narrators tend to typecast themselves. This is what I do. This is what I do well enough that people want to listen. So this is what I will do. I'm never going to be asked to narrate the Book of Mormon. <laughs> that would be, I'd listen to it. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Uh, audiobooks in general seem to be, I mean, they've been around obviously for a long time, going back to the old like books on tape that my dad mm-hmm. would get from the library, but, but they seem to be exploding in popularity recently. And, and it seems to be happening at the same time that also, I mean, podcasts are, are getting very large and we've seen a return of what's basically radio drama in podcast form. Yes. Like that fiction podcasts, whether they're single narrator or their radio drama are becoming very popular that this more and more people seem to want fiction in audio form. 
And why do you why do you think that is? I think um, people are listening to them on their iPhone or their smartphone because they can't take the time to sit down in their comfy chair with their favorite adult beverage and read the book that they want to read. They're, they have to do other things at the same time. So they're listening to the book, which is, I think, partially why they tend to speed it up while they're taking care of the kids, while they're doing you know, work at home that needs to be taken care of because our schedules have gotten so cluttered that unfortunately it's just hard uh, to make the time even in bed, you know, to read a chapter before, you know, assuming the supine position and, you know, start the snoring that will disturb the kids and the spouse. Um, A lot of my listening comes from driving. Uh, I would, when I was going from my house to downtown Houston because of traffic, I, I could listen to a, a CD going into work and then listen to another CD coming home from work. So it's just you want the entertainment, you want to you want the experience of reading, but without the the book in front of you. So it's it has now fit into our schedules easier than getting the uh, the paperback off the spinny rack at the uh, local drugstore. I think I would, I think you're right, but I might add to it that the more the more time I spend with audio, um, the more I like audio as a medium. And I think I, I've realized like I think there's an intimacy to audio that isn't present in other mediums. It's not it's not present in video. Um, it's not present in you know the text on a page that there's this having someone speaking into your head is like a really powerful experience um in and this shows up so like i host this free thoughts podcast um and and i get people people say like you know this is the thing that listening to this is the thing that you know changed my mind about a lot of issues and i think one of the reasons is that the intimacy of the experience of hearing a person talking to you without without the video they're not on a screen six feet away they're like right there in your head Mm -hmm. and it it just it brings like this kind of humanity and this connection and i know that when i listen to you know so that the narrators who i have listened to over and over and over again through various books or the podcast hosts that i listen to you get this kind of sense of like a personal connection to them i've gotten to know this person in a way that's very different from other mediums. And and that seems like that would be particularly powerful in fiction, which is, I mean, it's about telling a story, but it's also about establishing a connection between you and these other people. Yeah, it goes, I think it goes back to our first storytelling experiences or hearing when mom or dad or grandpa told you a story and that put you to sleep and that was your comfort. It's a one-on-one experience. Uh, we got to listen to that uh, uh, if we were able to go to summer camps uh, or church camps or something like that. We're hearing a story and we're becoming enveloped in the story focused on the teller's narration and storytelling skills. Um, a lot of uh, books that are up for audition on ACX or elsewhere, the number one criteria, storyteller. People want that experience of, you know, that's why you don't shout when you're reading, narrating a book. It's like you're six, seven inches away from a person's head 
and you're just telling them this story, and this is what happened. And it's is comforting. there anyone? Is there anyone in who you haven't narrated, like kind of people who you would most love to be able to tell their stories? Um, the number one pick might surprise a lot of people. I would love to to narrate uh, something wicked this way comes. Or, or Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury. He was really my first, yup, I'm a reader experience beginning in fifth grade. I, I found a collection of his stories. I think it was ours for Rocket that my uh, older uh, uh, stepbrother owned. And it's like, who is this guy? And why can I not stop turning pages? Uh, yeah, I'd love to do a Ray Bradbury novel. My, uh, my, <laughs> my number one, oh, one of these days I'm going to do it. Uh, it would be uh, Stephen King or Peter Straub, uh, mm-hmm. or um, but right offhand, you know, those those are the ones that just like my fantasy narration. Stephen King, Peter Straub, or, or or Ray Bradbury would just yeah, I could retire happy and eat cans of beans for the rest of my life if I got one of those guys. I mean, just imagining it, like trying that. Uh- Listening to you read something wicked this way comes would be pretty great. I, th- I think I would do good at that one, quite honestly. I'd try not to toot my horn too loud, keep things in check. But yeah, that one's just a great story. And you know? just to be able to tell that story of the two boys and that, that experience uh, Halloween. Yeah, that. Yeah. We are we're recording this in mid-April when much of America is shut into their homes and lots of parents are suddenly thrust into homeschooling. Um, I know I am with my three young children and it's been, it's been a challenge. Um, and so lots of people maybe now who, who maybe weren't before, maybe reading books to their kids. Do you have advice for you know, these aren't people who are trying to become professional narrators. They're just parents who want to read a story well to their family. Do you have advice for them on how to do a better job reading out loud? For young children, you go big. Go big. If they're three, four years old, you can just do huge arm narration. If they're a little older, Bring it down. You're just talking to one person. You can do the characters. You, you can talk to the puppy. You can be Mr. Gruffman. But just tell it like you would want to be able to, to hear it. You don't have to go big and loud on everything. It's Because it's a one-on-one or one-to-two if it's a couple of kids at the same time. It's a conversation um, between friends. And there's there's no need to shout. Just let the words come through you, through your heart, through your head, and then out your mouth. You just tell the story without making a big stink about it, is what somebody told me. Just just tell the damn story. You don't have to go crazy. And on that note, I'm going to let Scott tell a damn story. In this case, one of my damn stories from Animus, my collection of horror and crime tales. I hope you enjoy. Snowed in. Hank stared through the windshield at the snow. His wipers shoved fat clumps. Where they didn't reach, the slush piled two inches thick. Hank squinted and leaned forward over the steering wheel, 
The light from the bar's sign barely came through. He checked the clock. He didn't know why. It didn't matter what time it was. It did matter that he hadn't driven far enough. Even with this storm, they could still be following him, if they were following him. He looked into the back seat at the duffel. Three hundred grand. Not bad. Hank popped the driver's side door and climbed out. Cold cut through his jacket and snow stuck to his face. He brushed it away and opened the back, pulled off the duffel and slung it over his shoulder. Fuck it. If he had to wait this thing out, at least he could do it with a roof over his head and a beer in his hands. He trudged the thirty feet to the bar's front door. Only one other car in the parking lot, a station wagon some distance away, obscured by snow. At the bar's entrance, Hank stopped. Was there someone in that other car? He glanced back. Too much goddamn snow. But he didn't think so. No, only shadows. He had a gun in the duffel. He thought about taking it out, but didn't. Jumpy. You're just jumpy. Cut it out. Get a beer to settle your nerves. This'll blow over soon. Then you can get back on the road and drive. The safe house is only a few hours further. After that, you wait for the bigger storm, the shitstorm you and your buddies just stirred up to settle. This snow is nothing compared to that one. Hank pushed open the bar's door and stepped inside. Light and warmth and a jukebox playing the talking heads. He stood in the entrance, brushing snow from his hair and his jacket. He stomped his feet, knocking more snow from them. The small room held six tables. Along the far wall ran the bar proper, yards of polished oak and worn stools. A man in a turtleneck stood behind it, gaunt with high cheekbones. The man looked up, cocked his head, and chuckled. Out out there, isn't it? he said, rubbing the bar with a rag. Hank nodded, walking over. Fucking cold as hell, Hank said. He pulled out the stool nearest the bartender and sat down, putting the duffel on the next stool over, within easy reach. Amazed we still got power, the bartender said. It gets like this. The lights are liable to go out. Stay that way, too, till the city gets someone out to fix them. Hank shrugged. Your cooler still working? It is. What do you have? Hank ordered a Bud Light. This'd be the only one, though. The storm could quit any time, and the last thing he wanted was to be swerving over the center line and get pulled over by some country cop. You just passing through? The bartender asked after he'd set the bottle of beer in front of Hank. Anyone come by not just passing through? Hank asked. The bartender laughed again. That's the way of things, isn't it? Way out here, we never get more than a handful of folks at any one time. Sure, Hank said. Where are you heading after just passing through? Logging job, Hank said. His standard line. People told him he looked like a logger or a football player, and a logger was less prone to provoke interest. I bet. What's that mean? I'll bet. The bartender shrugged. You just looked the part. Yeah, Hank said. Well, right now. 
I want to look the part of drinking my beer without telling my fucking life story. The bartender smiled and nodded and walked to the far end of the bar where he picked up a rag and resumed polishing. This was happening for a reason. She'd asked the universe to provide. She'd put out positive thoughts. The universe returned them with a snowstorm and a busted engine. Maggie adjusted the vent to blow warm air on her face. She leaned back into the seat. She put her hands behind her head, laced her fingers, and closed her eyes. Maggie imagined how this might be what she'd been waiting for, this snowstorm forcing her off the road, this bar with its off-kilter sign, this unexpected and actually kind of shitty stop on what was supposed to be an easy trip to her sister's cabin to stay a while while her sister was out of town. The universe liked to play pranks, of course. She'd asked it for a man to sweep her off her feet, and it'd given her William. He was good and kind and dependable, and so she'd asked the universe to make him her husband, and it provided that, too. William was dependable. If you depended on him to do whatever didn't need to be done and neglect entirely whatever did, like the car, he'd promised to fix it. But half an hour ago, she was cursing his name as black smoke leaked from under the trunk and the engine sputtered. She'd still been cursing when the snow hit. But the universe provides. It always does. This was all happening for a reason. Maggie just needed to figure out what that reason was and how she could best use it. She got out of the car, shocked at the cold as the door popped and the wind hit. She walked around to the trunk, opened it, and glanced inside. Everything was where she'd put it. Nothing had come undone in the bumping and shaking from the road in the gusts. At least that wasn't screwed up. On the way across the parking lot, she passed an aging Ford pickup. She peered in the windows, clearing a hole in the snow with her hands. Nothing. Maggie had thought there was someone inside when she'd pulled up. Must have been shadows. She stood for a moment, watching the snow fill the spot she'd swept clean, telling herself to stay positive because the universe rewarded positivity with positivity and compounded negativity a hundredfold. It could be worse. There could be no bar, just mile after mile of empty road and snow coming down even heavier. She could have been stopped for speeding, and then she'd have to deal with the ticket and everything else. The universe gave her the bar, at least. Maggie offered a quick thanks before stepping inside the building. Warmth. She loved it. She stood, enjoying it for a moment, not even looking around. Then she noticed the two men watching her and smiled, waving, Hey there, she said, heading toward them. The one behind the bar laughed. Another, he said. Maggie said, That's me. I am another. The bartender said, Storm's good for business, isn't it? Maggie liked the other guy's looks. Maybe forty, forty-five. Tall, burly, like a construction worker or a biker. Leather jacket like a biker, too. And would you just look at the size of him? He had to have ten pounds on William, 
and without a bit of fat. The universe was good, she thought, very good indeed. She took the stool to the left of him, seeing that the one on the right was occupied by a large duffel bag. She said, I'm Maggie. What's your name, honey? The guy turned. He looked at her. He said, Hell of a storm. Maggie nodded. Oh, it sure is. It most certainly is. I'm so glad I found this place. I think the snow got stuck in my radiator, made the engine clog up, however those things work. She sighed, trying to sound flirty. Anyway, the car's broke. She put her hand on the burly man's arm. He didn't pull away. Don't suppose you know much about cars, do you, honey? He shook his head. Not a goddamn thing. The bartender said, We got a phone you want to call for a tow. Maggie pulled her attention from the biker and grinned at the bartender. Oh, that'd be perfect, honey. There's someone close by could fix it up. The bartender shrugged. Gonna be a while, he said, in this weather. Maggie looked back at the biker. I can wait, she said. She still had her hand on his arm. She said, you got a name, honey? The biker was quiet a moment. Then he said, Hank. Well, Hank, it's a real pleasure to meet you. Maggie held out her hand to shake. Hank took it, tugged it up, then down, then let go. He said, Pleasure. You a local? Maggie said. Hank shook his head. He's just passing through, the bartender said. Maggie said to Hank, Fancy that. So am I. The bartender said, I get you anything. Can you do a cosmopolitan? She smiled at Hank. I'm going to be stuck here. I might as well splurge on something fancy. Isn't that right, honey? Sure, Hank said, staring straight across the bar at the row of bottles. Might as well. While the bartender mixed her drink, Maggie asked Hank, If you're just passing through, where are you passing through to? A logging job, Hank said. You're a logger? Yeah, Hank said. That's just a hoot. Yeah, Hank said. I was thinking to myself when I came in that that man's in construction, or maybe a biker. But now you mention it, you look exactly like a logger, just like I always pictured them. Glad to hear it, Hank said. Emery licked his lips. He rubbed his eye with the back of his wrist. He scratched his arm hard and pulled at his fingernails. He grooved on the pain. He'd killed them, finally. He'd liked the feel of stabbing the woman. He'd loved the feel of bludgeoning the man. Emery ran hot water over the wrench, watching blood and hair swirl in the sink and wash down the drain. The man's blood and hair. He'd already cleaned the woman's blood and bile and shit from the knife. He couldn't wait to do it again. He checked the wrench. Clean. He picked up the knife and carried both over to the toilet, the tank open, the lid sitting on the closed seat. He lowered his tools carefully inside and put the lid back. He checked the toilet and the sink for blood, for evidence, and found none. Excellent job. Practice makes perfect. Downstairs, the bar's door opened, and Emery heard wind before it slammed shut. He stood still, waiting. 
He heard the bartender say something, muffled, and then a man's voice, deep. That voice sounded, No, he thought, just a man, just a new customer. Emery stayed still. He listened to the new man and the bartender talk. He heard a stool scrape on wood. Emery scratched his arms and chewed his fingernails. He opened the toilet again, checking his tools. Still there, still clean. A man has to respect his tools, Emery thought. Otherwise, they won't respect him. Emery made sure the toilet was back to the way it had been. He gave the whole bathroom a once-over. No mistakes. He was good at this. He left the room, pulling the door closed behind him. Emery was curious to meet this new man, but he had something to do first. He walked down the short hallway to the room at the end, opened the door a few inches, and looked inside. Moonlight came through the windows along the far wall. It wasn't much, but it was enough to see the shape of the queen-size bed, to see the jumble of sheets, the light reflected off blood which dripped from linens and pooled on the floor. Emery let out his breath. Everything was just as he'd left it. Softly, he pulled the door closed, feeling it latch. He hoped he'd never see them again. Somewhere, in the back of his head, in those parts of his mind he couldn't control, a voice said, Oh, but you will, my boy. You always do. Emery hissed. Quiet? He took a breath and added, Calmer. Leave me alone. He was walking back down the hall toward the bathroom, on his way to the stairs that led to the bar, when he heard another new person come in. She said, Hey there. The bartender said something Emery couldn't make out. The woman said, That's me. I am another. That voice. Again. No. A woman. Nothing more. Emery made another stop in the bathroom. He looked in the mirror above the sink, spit in his hands, and slicked back his hair. A new woman. He took his jacket off the hook and shrugged into it. He adjusted his bow tie. Goody. The stairs creaked. Hank turned down his stool. A kid, no more than twenty-five, came down the steps. He wore a tweed jacket and sported a bow tie. He had his hair greased back like a 1950s nerd. The kid stopped at the bottom, looking across the room at Hank and Maggie. Hank thought, what the hell's wrong with this guy? The kid stared at them. He closed his eyes opened them, stared long and hard again. He blinked, ran his hands across the top of his head and down to his neck. The kid looked like he might faint. It's shock, Hank realized, shock and surprise. Maggie said, Oh, there's another one trapped here, too. Then she said, You okay, sugar? The kid licked his palm and rubbed his hands together. He hugged himself. Then he smiled and waved at them. I apologize, he said, crossing the empty bar. The weather has been nervous, and I admit to feeling a little sick besides, he added. Terribly glad to find I'm not the only one here, though. He looked at the bartender. Besides my buddy, of course. The bartender said, You want anything to drink now? 
The kid shook his head. No, I'm afraid my stomach couldn't handle it. He stared at Hank again, then at Maggie, then back to Hank. What the hell was wrong with him, Hank thought again. The kid took the open stool next to Maggie. He said to the bartender, You wouldn't by chance have some tea. That could go a long way toward making me feel better. The bartender grunted and nodded. The kid said, Thank you so very much. He turned to Maggie. He peered at her a moment, then at Hank. He said, I memory. Hank could see sweat beating on his forehead. Does this kid know me? Hank thought. He could be with the police, with the FBI even. He looked young, but they start them young, and this kid looked so unimposing that he might just be undercover. But how could the feds figure out Hank would be here? Of all the places he might stop after nabbing the cash, there's no way they could pin him down to this shack, unless they followed him. Hank said, leaning in front of Maggie, Where are you from, Emery? Emery looked at Hank. His face flashed worry. He blinked and swallowed. He said, Out east, just passing through. In all honesty, I've been hitchhiking, if you can believe it. Emery licked his palm again, rubbed his hands together. The bartender brought his tea. Emery poured it carefully from the metal pot into the small cup. He lifted the string on the bag, pulled it out of the water, and dropped it back in. He did this again, and again. Emery's eyes kept flicking from the tea to Hank, from the tea to Maggie. He knows us, Hank thought. He's not a cop. He's not FBI. But he knows us. And then he thought, us? Maggie and I don't know each other, so how can he know us? Maggie felt bad for this kid. Maybe he'd come down with something, like he said, but she bet it was more likely he was just wrong in the head, and he kept staring at her. She said, Hitchhiking's kind of risky, don't you think, sugar? Lots of weirdos out there. Emery nodded. I'm careful, he said. Besides, hitchhiking usually turns into a great deal of taking the bus. Not many people jump at the opportunity to pick up someone standing along the side of the road, if you can believe it. He could end up being a weirdo. He flashed Maggie a nervous smile, then went back to his tea, but not before giving her a quick glance up and down. Maggie always granted the universe the benefit of the doubt. If it took the time to provide her with something, she'd err on the side of thinking it was for the best. But this guy, Emery, made her feel totally uncomfortable. She shifted away from him on her stool, closer to Hank. She liked Hank. She imagined herself doing a whole lot more than just liking Hank and had to bring a hand up to her mouth to hide an embarrassed giggle. If Emery turned out weird in a bad way, she knew Hank would protect her. The universe wouldn't put her in an awful situation without providing a means to overcome it. Over the next half hour, she tried to talk to Hank, but he stayed strong and silent, drinking his beer and keeping an eye on the duffel. Maggie told herself that 
even if it were drugs or something equally bad he had in there, she wouldn't hold it against him. The universe dealt everyone a different hand, and you had to make the most of it. If Hank had drugs or guns, he had a reason. She also tried talking to Emery, drawing out a bit more about the hitchhiking. But that creepy vibe came on even stronger. Maggie needed a break from it, so she said to the bartender, You got a washroom, sugar? Up the stairs, first door, the bartender said. Maggie excused herself. It's them, Emery thought. Jesus, it's them. He played cool the best he could. He drank his tea and made small talk and tried not to stare at the man and woman. But it was most certainly them, the same ones, all his life, over and over and over. And every time, every goddamn fucking time, he beat them or cut them or otherwise hurt them so bad that they died. And just as soon as he washed the blood off his tools, off himself, he'd find them again, Another couple, the same couple, except, as always, the man and the woman pretended it wasn't them. They pretended not to recognize him. Emery acted like he didn't know this, that he hadn't figured out their game. But inside, he was trembling, terrified. The woman, Maggie, she said her name was, pushed her drink away, stood up, and excused herself to use the bathroom. Emery turned on his stool, watching her go, apprehensive about his tools. He stared at her back as she crossed the bar. He thought, angry and afraid, why won't you stay dead? The kid, Emery, was twitching. Hank watched him, revulsion making his skin crawl. Maggie got up to use the bathroom, and the kid dunked his tea bag again, picked up the cup, hand-shaking, slopping hot water over his fingers. He didn't seem to notice. Hank watched the scalding liquid turn the kid's skin pink. Hank thought, maybe it's time to leave. Get back in the car, not worry about how bad the snow is, and just drive. Better than being trapped here with this jumpy, sweaty, creepy little shit. Emery was staring at him again. Yeah, Hank said. Emery said, really bad weather, don't you think? Yeah, Hank said. Emery broke eye contact. His fingers were streaked red with tea burns. He lifted his other hand, slicked back his hair. He said, what's in the bag? Hank didn't say anything. Emery set down his cup, stood, and walked around Hank, stopping behind the stool with Hank's duffel. Is it something special? Hank looked up at him. What I mean is, Emery said, you took the effort to bring it inside out of the cold. You didn't leave it in your automobile. He glanced at Hank. Is it something alive? Perhaps you didn't want it to freeze. It's not alive, Hank said. No, I expect not. Emery lifted his burned hand to his chin, a contemplating gesture. If it were alive, I'd expect it to be moving at the very least. That is, if it's an animal. It could be plants, I suppose. Is it plants? 
plants are alive, Hank said. This ain't. You want to sit back down, drink your tea, and leave me and my bag alone? Emery turned his head, staring out the corner of his eyes at Hank. He said, Sure, of course. I'm only making conversation. That's what you do. What people do when in these circumstances. They make conversation. Hank put his hand on the bag. He said, I ain't the sort for conversation. Funny that, Emery said. I feel a connection of a kind to you. Do you agree? Fuck off, Hank said. He glanced around for the bartender, who'd apparently wandered off. That's not the sort of conversation I had in mind, Emery said. He returned to his seat and dunked his tea again. Hank thought he saw him use the cup to hide a dry heave. Maggie stared at herself in the mirror. The universe does provide, she thought. Her hair looked absolutely perfect. The snow hadn't messed it up at all. She pinched her cheeks, raising rosy spots. Hank would be fun, a perfect target for her feminine charms. You're a beautiful girl, she said to her reflection, and the universe recognizes your beauty. It will bring you beautiful things. Like that big man downstairs. On the wall, across from the door, and to the right of the sink, a small window let in pale light. Maggie leaned toward it, looking through. Snow. Nothing but snow and the moon's glow. Her breath fogged the glass. She rested her forehead on its cool surface. The universe had provided her with so much bounty, bringing this new life she'd just embarked upon. She breathed out, making the fog thicker. Maggie traced a heart. The storm would fade. She'd get back in the car. She'd drive. Soon. Soon, Maggie's past could be left entirely behind. Soon, she'd become who she was always meant to be. The universe provides. She turned away from the window. She flipped down the toilet seat, grabbed a handful of tissue, and wiped the surface. Maggie sat down and leaned back against the tank, its lid shifting behind her. She closed her eyes, put her hands on her knees, and tilted her head back. She imagined she could hear the snow falling, great fat flakes settling and crunching, burying who she'd been. With the universe's help, she'd emerged from this winter as fresh as the spring. Maggie cleared her mind of everything but the silence of the snow. Her meditation was deep. She didn't know how long it had lasted before she heard someone out in the hall. She was standing up when a fist knocked on the door, and Emery said through the thin wood, Open up, you resourceful little whore. Emery's mouth had gone dry. He dropped his tea bag into the empty cup and looked over at Hank at the man who was calling himself Hank, but who Emery knew wasn't Hank at all, wasn't even human. That bag, Emery glanced at it, hanging over the edge of the stool. Why did he bring that? Emery licked his palm and slicked back his hair. Hank ignored him. Emery had to get out of here. He had to think. He stood up. Hank didn't move. Emery looked around for the bartender, but didn't see him. 
Emery headed upstairs, walking quietly up the steps, not wanting to disturb the other one, not wanting to scare her. Not yet. Past the bathroom, its door closed, down the hall, into the room where he'd laid the bodies to rest. Emery twisted the knob and stepped inside. They were gone. He ran to the bed, threw away the covers, tore off the sheets. Blood soaked the fabric. But they were gone. Emery bit down on his lower lip, willing himself not to scream. He rubbed his palms against the side of his head, pulling painfully at his hair. Sweat popped, chills ran along his back. He fell to his knees, holding his face, worrying his lip with his teeth, tasting blood. Gone. He'd killed them. Was he going mad? He'd killed them and put them here, and the evidence was right there in front of him. He kicked out at the sheets. All that blood. But was he imagining that, too? Was it really there? Or, like the bodies, was it gone as well, and now only an after-image in his frayed mind? Emery spun, staring out the open door into the hall. Or had they lived? They had. He hadn't actually killed them. And they were mocking him now. But no. He'd checked them. They'd been dead. The man's head. He'd cut almost all the way off. He'd used the pliers on the woman's windpipe. They had to be dead. But then where were the bodies? Emery stopped. He dropped his hands from his face. He let go of his lip. They'd taken them. They'd come in from out there, and when he wasn't looking, they'd come up here into this room and stolen themselves. And now Emery would make them show him how they'd done it. Hank turned. The kid came slowly down the stairs and crossed the room to the bar. When he was only a few feet away, Emery stopped and stared at Hank. The kid's eyes were different now, harder. Hank stood up, facing Emery. Hank could see sweat bead on the kid's face. Emery smiled, a huge, false smile. Emery said, However did you do it? Hank took a step back, putting his hand on the duffel, ready to go for the gun he'd stashed inside. He saw blood on Emery's knees. Emery moved toward him, saying, You two have it figured out. You must. How else to explain it? He laughed. How else, indeed? Hank said, The fuck's wrong with you? Emery cocked his head. I'd expect more civility from you. Hank grabbed the bag's handle. Emery said, Really, Hank? We have a relationship. You shouldn't use such language. Hank yanked the bag up, pulling at the zipper, ripping it open, reaching for the gun. Emery's hand came away from his side, holding a knife. He slashed at Hank, but the bag was in the way. The knife tore through the bottom of the duffel. The bag split. Stacks of cash tumbled. Hank pulled the gun free, a heavy browning automatic. Its barrel, tight in Hank's palm, held upside down like a club. He dropped the bag, raised the pistol and lunged forward over the bills, swinging the weapon at Emery's head. But the kid ducked away. 
The knife darted at Hank, slicing the arm with the gun, then slicing the wrist with the gun. Hank's fingers let go. The browning dropped. Hank balled a fist with his other hand and swung at Emery. Again, the kid moved too fast. The knife came up, raking Hank's knuckles. Emery stepped into the space between Hank's arms. He stabbed Hank in the gut. Maggie said, Pardon me? Through the door, Emery said, Oh, Maggie, I'm sure you heard what I said. Now please just do it. Maggie felt panic. She said, Emery, Sugar, are you all right? He hit the door with something heavy. She saw it shake. A moment's pause, and then, Maggie, please, I need to speak with you. It's a matter of some urgency. Maggie said, I don't think so, Sugar. You want to talk? Just do it through the door, okay? Oh, Maggie, Emery said. And then the door cracked and splinters flew. Maggie flinched away, falling from off the toilet and landed on the floor. Her ears rang. A gunshot. Emery had a gun. She stared at the hole in the door, at the wood chips and dust. Okay, she said. Okay, I'll come out. You hurt me, sugar. Give me a moment to get up, okay? Okay, Maggie, he said from the hall. Maggie grabbed the sink, pulling herself to her feet. Her leg throbbed. Where was Hank? He must have heard the shot. Her eyes came level with the toilet tank. She saw its heavy porcelain lid, slightly ajar. The universe provides. Maggie reached. She lifted the lid from the tank. She approached the door, holding the club, ready to swing. She said, Okay, sugar, I'm coming out. Thank you, Maggie, Emery said. Maggie pushed her toe under the bottom of the door and dragged it open a few inches. Hefting the toilet lid made her muscles ache. She said, You put away that gun, okay? Maggie hooked her knee into the opening and flipped the door open the rest of the way. She charged forward, bringing the lid down. Emery watched her, the gun at his side. He saw the blow coming and twisted. The lid missed his head and slammed into his shoulder. The gun flew. Emery screamed. Maggie lifted the lid again, brought it down, but Emery avoided it easily. With his good arm, he yanked the lid from Maggie. It hit the floor and tumbled down the steps. Emery said, You hurt me, Maggie. Maggie tried to run past him toward the stairs. He grabbed her around the waist, pulling her against him. Maggie said, Please, don't kill me. Emery threw her off the landing. Maggie snatched for the railing but couldn't find it. Her arm hit a step. She felt bone break. Her head hit a step. Pain rang. She tried to stay conscious but couldn't manage it. Emery walked downstairs, rubbing his shoulder. Maggie had always tried to hurt him. Now she had. He looked at her, crumpled at the foot of the steps. She'd live long enough. He glanced across the room at Hank, still slumped by his stool. Emery would have answers. He went back upstairs to get his tools. Hank heaved and immediately felt like he'd die. He opened his eyes and looked at his stomach. Blood. Too much blood. Wire bound his wrists behind his back. 
He tried to stand up, pushing away from the stool, but the pain in his abdomen made him fall back, biting his lip, drawing more blood. He looked around. Maggie lay on the ground next to him, hands similarly bound. Blood caked her scalp and face. He watched her breathe. Hi, Hank, Emery said. The kid was behind the bar. Hank couldn't see him. You really fucked up, you little shit, Hank said. We all really fucked up, Emery said. Hank heard him hop onto the top of the bar and then saw him jump down, landing a few feet away. Wake her up, Emery said, pointing at Maggie. Hank shook his head. Emery shrugged. He walked over and kicked Maggie in the thigh. Wake up, Maggie, he said. Maggie stirred. She moaned. She opened her eyes to just slits, and then wide. Maggie jerked, coming to her knees, but Emery forced her back down with his foot. Be still, he said. Maggie closed her eyes. Emery took something from the top of the bar. Hank's gun, Hank saw. The one he'd had in his bag. We're all going upstairs, Emery said, to my room. We're going to have a discussion. He pistol-whipped Hank in the jaw. Moonlight on bloody sheets. Maggie gasped. She couldn't breathe. Pain spiked her brain. She peered again through blood-gummed eyes. But for the light from the window, the room was dark. The overhead lamp turned off. Hank sat next to her, his hands behind his back, his chin on his chest, unconscious. His shirt and pants looked black, more blood. Maggie rolled onto her side. Her hands were also bound, wire cutting her wrists. They both sat on the floor in the middle of the room, gore-caked sheets piled high between them and a hotel bed. More blood streaked the hard wood. It couldn't all be Hank's and hers. Familiar, isn't it? Emery said. Maggie quickly glanced in the direction of his voice but didn't see him. Then Emery stepped forward out of the gloom of the hallway and into the faint glow from the windows above the bed. Emery held a knife and pliers. Maggie squirmed away from him, sitting up and kicking back. She pushed through the sheets until she hit the bed. Emery watched her. Maggie got her legs under herself and stood up. Emery shook his head. You're only going to wear yourself out, he said, and... You've got quite an ordeal ahead of you, Hank moaned. Emery said, Hank wakes. He squatted on the floor in front of the bound man. Can you hear me, Hank? Emery tapped Hank's jaw with the knife. Hank flinched, but didn't open his eyes. We have much to talk about, and I need you fully alert. Maggie looked past Emery and Hank and at the open door. Emery said, Maggie, don't. I will cut you, quite badly, if that's what it takes to keep you here and an active participant. Maggie said, What do you want? Emery slapped Hank. Hank reeled, coming awake. Emery said, Hank, are you listening? Maggie asked me to explain myself. A fair request considering the circumstances. But 
I'd like to be certain you hear me, too, as I'd rather not repeat myself. Hank said, Fuck you. I'll choose to take that as both a response to my query and an ill-considered outburst. Emery stood, put the pliers in his pocket, licked his now-empty palm, and slicked back his hair. He stared out the window. I swear, he said, that we've done this before. Every time I do this, I swear it's not the first time. He looked back at Maggie. Or am I quite nuts? Maggie said, I'm sure. Really, Maggie, please. He gestured at her with the knife. What I brought us together for is to ask the two of you nicely, if you'll let me, not so nicely if you make me, what you did with the dead people who used to be in this room. Maggie gasped. Hank moaned. Emery said, I'll clarify. I killed two people earlier today. He pulled the pliers out of his pants. With these, as a matter of fact, I made quite sure they were dead. He held the pliers out toward Maggie, level with her neck, clamped them shut just inches from her, and mimed twisting against resistance. Maggie tried to take a step back, but the bed stopped her. After killing them, I put them there, in that bed. He pointed. Wrapped them in those sheets, pointing again. And yet, as you can clearly see, they are not wrapped in those sheets and they are not in that bed. In fact, and this has been the story of my life, really, they are right here, quite alive. Hank there and Maggie right there. He looked at Maggie. Care to explain? Maggie said, That doesn't make any sense. Oh, I'm aware, Emery said. Hank looked up. I'm going to kill you. I hope not, Emery said. He stopped, considered, then laughed. Though I do suppose it'd be fair, tit for tat, seeing as I already killed you. What are you talking about, Maggie said. We're alive, sugar. She doesn't understand, Emery thought. She didn't the last time either, or the time before that. She never had. All his life he'd been killing these fucking people, and every goddamn time they didn't understand why? His head suddenly ached. His vision blurred. He licked his palm, slicked his hair. He regained his composure. Emery smiled at Maggie. We really must stop this, he said. Maggie sat down on the bed. She didn't seem to notice or care about the blood. Emery saw her wince at the pressure on her bound wrists. Maggie said, I'm sure we can work this out, sugar. Whatever it is that's bothering you, you can tell us. We'll help. She paused. We'll get you help. Emery laughed and stepped toward her, raising the knife. I'm almost certain I need help of the very kind you're implying, Maggie. But there are things that need to be taken care of first. He put the point of the knife under her chin and lifted her head until she looked directly at him. 
I want it to end this time, Maggie. He tilted his head. You hear that, Hank? I want this to be the last time. Emery slashed the knife across the soft skin under Maggie's jaw. She screamed. His stomach hurt like hell, and he was pretty sure he wouldn't live, not with wounds like this, not without getting to a hospital. Hank tried to focus. He watched as Emery approached Maggie, raising the knife. Hank couldn't make out what the sick fuck was saying, though. Blood pounded in his ears. But when he saw Emery cut Maggie, Hank decided he didn't care if he was dying. He didn't care about the money, or the people he was meant to split it with, or the cops and FBI who were coming after him. All he cared about was pounding this little shit, no matter what the kid's deal was. Hank shoved off the ground, launching himself at Emery. Emery held the knife high, watching Maggie bleed and fall back onto the bed. Hank hit him solid, his shoulder connecting with Emery's kidney, driving the kid away from Maggie. Hank heard Emery start to shout, but then the air rushed from the kid's lungs as the two men slammed into the floor, Emery's head cracking off the wood. The knife Emery still held punctured Hank's jeans and sunk deep into his thigh. The pain made Hank bite down on his tongue, almost through his tongue, but he ignored it. Hank, laying on top of Emery, lifted his head and slammed his forehead into Emery's nose. More blood. So much blood. This time Emery screamed. Again, the universe provided. He'd caught her and it hurt so bad Maggie had to force herself not to pass out. She could feel the blood washing down her chest, soaking her shirt. Her jaw burned. Maggie swayed on the bed, telling herself if she died here, that was okay, because at least she'd done what she'd planned to do. At least she'd accomplished that. But then, as always, the universe provided. Hank. She couldn't imagine how he had any strength left in him, not with those wounds, jumped up and into Emery, knocking both of them down, and then Hank headbutted Emery in the face and Emery's nose exploded. The universe would not have put her in this situation without a way out, and here it was. This fine and wonderful man had saved her. Maggie stood, unsure on her feet, and stepped over the two men, still struggling on the floor. Neither seemed to notice her. She walked around the bloody sheet, swaying, and then out into the hall. Where was the bartender? Hadn't he heard any of this? Had Emery killed him? She stopped at the top of the steps, looking down. She could make it. She wouldn't fall. Except that she couldn't hold the railing, not with her hands still wired behind her back. Maggie sat down and began inching forward, lowering her feet onto a step, then scooting until her butt fell, then doing it again, like a child descending. Each thump made her want to scream, pain lancing through her chin and up to the top of her head, and the wire cut deeper into her wrists. Slow, she thought. Do it slow. Behind her, she heard shouting and stomping feet. She heard Emery say, Fuck! That really does hurt. And Hank say something. 
She didn't know what, his voice oddly thick and mumbling. Then she heard the two of them come out into the hall, and she looked back and saw them, Emery dragging Hank by the hair, Hank trying to get up, but his boots couldn't find purchase on the wood floor, the heels slipping in the streaks of blood from Maggie's jaw. She started down again, faster, not ignoring the pain, but trying to imagine it elsewhere, happening to someone else. Maggie called out to the universe, "'Where are you going, Maggie?' Emery said behind her. She felt his hand come down on her shoulder, grabbing hold of the fabric, pulling her back from the stairs. No, she wouldn't let him win, not after everything she'd been through, not after this fresh start she'd given herself. Maggie jumped, jerking from Emery's grip and rolling, tumbling, falling down the steps. A stair struck her elbow and she shrieked as bone cracked. Another clipped the side of her head, catching her ear and tearing it partially away. Maggie bounced and plunged and stopped. She lay at the bottom of the steps, on her back, her arms pinned underneath her. Blood from her chin and ear covered her face, gummed her eyes. She coughed and sobbed. She felt the wire on her wrists, looser now, sliding off. Then something else fell down the steps, something heavy and awkward. She could only see the vague shape as it flipped and rolled, banging into step after step after step. It thudded beside her and lay still. Maggie turned her head, the pain awful, and looked at it. Hank, his neck twisted, bent, broken. One down, Emery said. One to go. Emery watched the bitch try to run. Beneath him, at the bottom of the steps, Maggie pushed herself away from Hank and struggled to her feet. She stumbled, nearly fell, but stayed up and limped toward the door. Oh, Maggie, Emery called down to her. He dropped the knife, letting it bounce away down the steps until it hit the floor next to Hank's head. Oh, Maggie, he said again when she didn't look back. This had gotten so fun, he admitted. Yes, It'd be good to have the cycle of killing over with, to return to his regular life before things got so fucked up and out of hand, before he ended up here. But he had come to enjoy the work. He took a step down, again pulling out the pliers. With Hank, he'd needed to make a quick kill. With Maggie, he wanted to take his time. Maggie got the door open and was immediately knocked back by the rush of wind and snow from outside. Emery laughed, but Maggie fought and managed to make it through out into the parking lot. She pulled the door closed behind her. Emery hopped the rest of the way down, leapt over Hank, and followed. The cold, as the door swung open, tore at his face. Blowing ice stung his shattered nose. He didn't mind. He liked it. The pain helped him focus. Maggie was little more than a rough outline in the moonlight and swirling snow, and she faded quickly the further away she got. She's headed to her car, he thought. You won't get far, Maggie, he whispered into the blizzard. You'll never leave this place, my dear. He chased after her. The snow covered the ground, almost six inches thick, 
Emery's loafers failed to keep it out, and his feet were quickly very wet and very cold. Maggie, he shouted. Where are you going, Maggie? He jogged. Her shape reemerged, standing behind a station wagon. Maggie dug in her pockets, and as he came within a few yards, she pulled out keys, jammed them into the trunk's lock, and popped it open. She glanced back, saw him. Get away from me! she screamed. Emery laughed again. I could say the same to you, Maggie, he said, not shouting, but loud enough for her to hear. She reached into the trunk. Emery took three steps toward her, then lunged. He wasn't fast enough. Maggie lifted the gun and brought it around. Light from the moon and the bulb inside the trunk reflected off polished steel. As he fell toward her, Emery saw simple calm on her face. He saw blood and hair caked on the butt of the gun. Maggie fired once, the pistol jumping. The shot took Emery high in the chest and to the right, spinning him in the air. He tumbled into the rear of the car and collapsed against it, his upper body in the open trunk. Emery smelled something. He knew the bullet had inflicted terrible damage. His ears rang. His arms were numb. He smelled something in the trunk. Emery strained to lift his head, to see. Beneath him, under a tarp that had been pushed away, eyes stared up at Emery from a bloated face. Middle age, fat, balding. The dead man smiled a rigor grin. Maggie dropped the gun. Her broken left arm hung at her side. Blood covered her neck and shirt. Her torn ear had gone numb. She stared at Emery as he bled into the snow. He shuddered. His breathing slowed. Stopped. He sagged over the open trunk. Maggie grabbed his hair and pulled him away, letting him fall into the crimson snow. Her knees gave out and she collapsed beside him. No, she wouldn't let herself be weak. Not after the universe gave her the tools to win and she had won, first over William and her old life, and now over Emery. Maggie put her hand on the bumper and pulled herself up. She reached to close the trunk, but paused, looking down at William. He'd been a good husband once, but only for the briefest time, and then he'd turned dull. Maggie needed excitement. The universe wanted her to have excitement, but it told her such pleasure wasn't given. She needed to take it. So she had, and it was wonderful. Thank you, she said to the thick clouds above. Glancing up messed with her balance. Maggie took a step back to study herself and nearly tripped over Emery. The universe had nothing for him. She slammed the trunk shut on William, then turned and began walking to the bar. The storm seemed stronger. Maggie felt near death from the cold by the time she got to the front door. She pushed it open. The bar was empty. She looked to her right and saw Hank's body at the bottom of the stairs. Maggie called out, Hello, bartender? Nothing. She walked around the side of the bar and along the back until she found a door to the employees-only portion of the place. 
but when she opened it, she found only a small room, ten feet square, the walls, ceiling, and floor painted a uniform white. Maggie walked back across the main room, around Hank's corpse, taking the knife that lay next to him, and up the stairs. Her hip throbbed. Her arm ached. She'd wash up, make a sling for her arm, and get out of here. She wouldn't wait for the storm to stop. Every room except the bathroom and Emery's room was locked. Maggie inhaled, readied herself, and stepped into that awful space where she'd been tortured and nearly killed. Still no sign of the bartender. He must have fled, she thought. When things turned violent, he took off. But where? Maggie used the knife to cut a clean strip from the sheets. She carefully wrapped her arm, and then, with considerable difficulty, tied the ends of the sling behind her neck. She left the room and went down the hall toward the bath. She stopped before entering. She glanced down the steps. What the fuck? Hank was gone. Blood covered the wood where he'd lay, but his body wasn't there. Maggie shouted, Hank! Her call echoed. She ran down the stairs. Hello? No Hank. No bartender. I have to get out of here, she thought. Now! Maggie ran out into the snow. Wind whipped at her, nearly knocking her down. Maggie leaned into it, willing her muscles to push, willing her legs to get her the hell away from this place. Snow nicked her face, stung her eyes. She sent her thoughts out to the universe, begging it to provide one more time to offer her a way out or to give her the means to find one. She passed the Ford pickup in the lot and saw her own car loom out of the blowing snow. I could drive in this. It could at least make it to the road, far enough away to then wait out the storm. Maggie reached numb fingers into her pocket for the keys and found nothing. She checked again, digging, feeling only the fabric of her jeans. She tried the other one. She'd lost them. They must have fallen in the snow when Emery attacked her. She ran the rest of the way to the car and looked down at the snow behind the back. Blood, shoe prints, no keys, no Emery. Maggie spun around. He was dead. She'd watched him die. Maggie fell to her hands and knees. She rooted around in the snow, desperately searching for the keys. She stopped, glancing back over her shoulder. What was that? She strained to hear. Whispering. Voices. Maggie stood up and peered hard into the blowing snow. She could see them. Figures in the snow. Who are you? She screamed at them, but the figures didn't respond. Maggie turned and saw more of them, obscured by the storm, indistinct. But there, right there, and whispering. Maggie forgot about the keys and the cold and Hank and Emery. She forgot about the bartender and her own wounds. Maggie ran away from the bar, away from her station wagon. She passed more of the figures, dozens of them, than hundreds. They didn't move, only watched her as she fled by. Eventually, the paved parking lot disappeared from under her feet and she was running on snow-covered grass. The terrain was flat, 
no bushes, no trees, no hills. Maggie ran. The cold was so awful. Soon she didn't feel it anymore. She didn't feel anything anymore. Maggie fell. Her head bounced off a rock. She rolled over onto her back. The figures, just shapes, without features, without faces, stood over her. They watched her close her eyes. They watched her until she lay still. Maggie knew this all was happening for a reason. The snow, the storm, having to get off the road. She leaned forward and peered through the windshield at the lights of the bar. She'd wait here until it blew over. She'd finish the drive to her sister's cabin and bury William out in the woods. Then she'd begin her new life. The universe provides. Maggie gathered her things, climbed out, and walked around to the trunk to check on William. He was still there, right where she'd left him, appearing, if anything, more alive than he ever had when actually living. At least now his face had an expression. She slammed the trunk, then looked down. Was her car leaking oil? Maggie crouched. No, not oil. She reached out and touched the dark spot in the snow and lifted her finger to her face. Blood? She shook her head. Some hunter had let his kill leak, she thought. It was disgusting. Maggie trudged across the parking lot, noting the Ford pickup that appeared to be the only other car here. She pushed open the bar's front door, delighted in the warmth from inside as it washed over her. On the far side of the large room, two men sat at the bar. They turned to look at her as she came in. The one on the right was large, in a leather jacket, with a duffel on the stool next to him. Maggie liked him. He was so not like William at all. The one on the left was just a kid, in his mid-twenties at most, wearing a tweed jacket with slicked-back black hair. The kid nodded at her and lifted a teacup to his lips. "'Boy, it's cold,' Maggie said, walking over to them. When she'd gone halfway, she heard someone coming down the stairs. She turned to look. He was a tall, gaunt man in a black turtleneck. He carried a garbage bag, stuffed full. Uh, hey, he said, waving with his free hand. "'Abba with you in a second. Just got to finish changing the sheets.' 